Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and can be found on page 984 in your Black Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will will appear with him in glory. Good morning, everyone. If I didn't say before, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad that you're here. Uh, this, this This morning, I want to begin by focusing our attention on a certain dynamic that's in the scriptures. I want to open with naming and acknowledging the relationship between the indicative mood and the imperative mood in the scriptures. And a mood is the thing in communication that denotes the intention of the speakers or of the writers. And the reason that I want to talk about this is because starting next week, we will be naming a lot of specific behaviors to avoid and certain behaviors to embrace or put on. There will be, there will be a lot of them, and I want us to hear Paul's exhortation correctly. I want us to care about things like holiness, holy living, about obeying the scriptures and living a life that seeks to apply the commands of the Bible. And I want us to be able to do that in the right order. I want us to be able to do that in the right sequence. The imperative mood gives us authoritative commands. That's how it works. That's the definition of the word. If I give my kids an imperative, I give them a command. And I give them a command that's backed with my authority over them as their father. And when the word, when the word of God gives us imperatives, it gives us commands. And those commands are backed by the perfect and ultimate authority of God himself. That's the imperative. The Bible is written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and commands in the Bible come from God. The indicative mood is not a command. The indicative, like it sounds, indicates something. It denotes a mood of verbs expressing simple statement of fact. You were raised. That's a direct statement indicating a fact. And the facts and the commands have a particular sequence and a definite relationship in the Bible. And this is why we hammer gospel facts every single week. And then we send you out to live those facts out in your day-to-day lives. Because that's how the logic of the scriptures works. Listen to this pastor. He says, quote, Every imperative of scripture... What we are to do for God rests on the indicative, who we are in our relationship with God. And the order is not reversible. 
The human instinct with every non-Christian religion reverses the order, teaching that who we are before God is based on what we can do for God. Thus, any preaching that is distinctively Christian must keep listeners from confusing or inverting our who and our do. Your right standing before God in Christ will necessarily give rise to a life of good works, but seemingly good works can't secure for you a right standing before God. You can't reverse the order. God came to you. God saved you. God gave you the righteousness of Christ. God declared you justified. God declares you holy. And not a single act of goodness or a single pious behavior can earn that for you. What's declared about you from God is what lays the groundwork for how you behave before him. Listen to this author. Justification is a once and for all declaration of right standing because of an imputed righteousness. Sanctification is a progressive growth in, the, in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ through an imparted righteousness. Or think about this. This author says, Paul's entire argument in Romans 6 rests on the fact that something has already happened. He does not say, if you yield your body to righteousness, you will die to sin, but rather, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. He does not say, make sure that sin does not master you, but rather he states, for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. So, we are going to hear many imperatives in the coming weeks. And every single one of them, every single one can only be successfully embraced and applied and obeyed and lived out if it's lived out on top of the right foundation. The foundation that Paul sums up with this sort of phrase, if then you've been raised with Christ. Another way to say this is you, Christian, were raised with Christ, therefore, therefore, you were raised with Christ, therefore, do this, see this, think this way, control your thoughts like this, do these behaviors, stop doing these other behaviors. Before the, before the apostle rattles off a list of vices, before he opens a veritable cornucopia of prohibitions against a litany of sins, sins like sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and anger and wrath and malice and slander, before he gets into those, he says for us to seek, to since we have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are down here on earth. And before we can move an inch in that direction, the direction of obedience, before you can move in an inch towards holy living, that reality, that fact has to sink down deep this morning. If you're in Christ, you've been raised with him and your life's over already in one way. And your new life is hidden with Christ in God. And now before we move any further, I'm going to pray for us. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? 
Holy Spirit, would you awaken, would you awaken our hearts? Would you illuminate truth this morning? Would you convict us of sin or things that we're entangled in? Attitudes, dispositions. Would you convict us of things that are weights in our lives? And would you free us from those? Would you increase our hope? Would you increase our confidence in your goodness? Would you, would you wake us up, convict us, and give us the grace to repent, transform us from the inside out, fill us with faith? This morning I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, I, I want us to experience the weight of the indicatives so that we can begin to live out the imperatives through faith and only through faith. I want to do this in three movements this morning. The first one is I want to unpack the phrase, if then you've been raised with Christ. Movement number two, I want to unpack the phrase, set your minds on, set your minds on. And then number three, I want to unpack the command to seek the things that are above. First, if you've been raised with Christ, listen to this author. Resurrection and death are not figurative metaphors in this respect. Believers' spiritual death has occurred and will be followed by a physical death. A real redemptive historical spiritual resurrection has been inaugurated and will be completely at the eschaton in physical resurrection. The first thing that needs to be shouted from the mountains is that this reality in the believer's life isn't a metaphor. This isn't a neat idea or a cool way of thinking about it. Colossians has been saturated with massive, earth-shattering claims from the beginning of the book, and they're not allegory. They aren't figures of speech. They aren't parables or tropes or fables to learn from. This is what's really going on in the universe right now. Christ is reigning as preeminent over everything, and that isn't a concept that's drummed up for us to give us fuzzy feelings when things in your life don't go exactly how you planned. This is the stuff that explains the entire universe. This isn't a thought experiment to get you to next week. Your death in a real way has already happened. Your death to sin, your death to the ruling spirits, your death to principalities, your death to your own self-focused dreams or plans or visions of what you thought your life should be. Paul says in Galatians, for I have been crucified with Christ. And we hear that and we say, what? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. I didn't get on a cross. Nobody flogged me. I wasn't nailed to a wooden beam. And yet in a real way, Christian, yes, you were. Yes, you were. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And this life, this life that we touch and feel and realize every day, we live by faith in Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you. And there's a real struggle here. It feels like it's just you living. The impulses to sin in your life are still alive and strong. 
The impulse to love idols is still alive and strong. It just bubbles up out of you without a thought. It springs out of us. But this verse says, I've been raised with Christ through faith. And back in Colossians 2.12, it's clear. It says, I was buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And his raising is your raising. The powerful working of God is the same power at work in your life now. This is the kind of grounding that you need. This is what your feet need so that you can stand sturdy in the day of adversity or stand sturdy against temptation that's assailing you on every side. This is the indicative. In a real way, you're dead. Statement of fact. And you've been raised with Christ. You're united to him in a death like his. And you've been raised and you will be raised with him on the last day in a resurrection like his. Christ didn't die in a quiet little corner of the globe so that we could follow a quaint little religion and show up to a cute building on Sundays to sing songs. All of us are his body. And every believer in the universe is in him. He's making a new humanity, and we're a part of that. And that has implications for how we live and how we understand our lives. But the facts have to drop down to the bottom of how we're oriented. They have to sink down into our souls. There's this thing going on every day that we wake up where we see our lives and we stare at the struggles in our lives and we chew on them and we mull over our challenges and we are tempted to believe that that's it. That this is all there is to reality. This is the stuff of life and it's underwhelming to say the least and for a lot of us, it's painful most of the time. But verses like these remind us that our lives in a real way are already over. There's a life that's new, and that's your resurrection life, and Christ keeps it for you. It's hidden in God. It's hidden from us. John Piper says it really succinctly this way. One second of the revelation of that hidden life will make you realize that you've never lived at all. Paul says to die is to be at home with Christ, but you and I feel pretty home at home. Most days we feel pretty home, pretty at home in our own skin or at work or with our family. And one day, the revelation of the life that's hidden with Christ will be uncovered and you'll realize that you spent your entire lives living in a foreign land. The life that's hidden with Christ in, this, in verse 3 is the life that's real. You've been raised with Christ. You're with him. There's a life that isn't this life. When you look at your life, that's not really your life. All of that is packed into this idea that you've been raised with him. So I want to name four ways that Christ is our life if we put our faith and hope in Jesus. Christ created your life. Christ sustains your life. Christ redeemed your life. And Christ owns your life. First, Christ created your life. 
Christ is the creator of the universe. Nothing is made, including your life, that isn't made by Christ. He made you out of nothing. How does life happen? It happens at the good pleasure of Christ. Your life that you're living and your new life that you're living in part now and will live fully in the future is a result of his good pleasure made through him and made for him. Christ created your life. He also sustains your life. Your life continues both now and forever because he sustains it. There'll never be a time in your life, both this life and the life to come, when Christ will not be the source and sustainer of all of it. He keeps it. He's the reason that it doesn't just disappear out of existence. He holds it together, and that will never change. You won't ever graduate from needing him to sustain you. We won't stop needing him in the new creation. We will only increase in our understanding and in our love for the fact that we're completely dependent on him for everything, for every breath and moment, every day, just completely and constantly in need of his cohering power. He sustains your life. Christ also redeems your life. You were bought with a price the scriptures say. And this is how redemption works. We were enemies of God, but Christ reverses that for us. And he pays the cost to make that happen. He paid the cost in his own blood to reverse our status with the living God. He took what we had ruined and he paid the cost to make it renewed. He took what we had destroyed and paid the cost to have it restored. He took, we, he took what we had trashed and he pays the cost to have it transformed. He took what we had vandalized and he paid the cost to recreate it. He redeems your life and he also owns it. He owns your life. It's, this, is, this is interesting because your life never belonged to you in the first place. But there, there did exist a time for all of us where we were under the delusion that it did. But that was a lie. Your life has never been yours. Exodus 19.5 says, all the earth is mine. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Job 41.11 says, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And yet how arrogant of us or insolent of us to ever have lived a second of our lives like they belong to us. I want to free you this morning from traps by reminding you that your money isn't yours. Your stuff doesn't belong to you. And also your body isn't yours, your brain and heart and soul, which means your opinions aren't yours to have or hold however you want to and do with them however you please. Our emotions, our feelings, our expressions, our attitudes and dispositions, all of these things are owned by Christ. We don't have any rights and we don't have any complaints against God. Christ owns everything and he owns everyone. And if that bugs you, 
then that's the kindness of a loving father to nudge you in the direction of noticing bristling and rebellion left. That's his kindness to expose sin in your life so that you can kill more of your remaining self-importance. Since you've been raised with Christ, reckon yourself raised with Christ. Much of our walk and struggle is trying to believe what's already true about us. The truest you is hidden. We have a deposit of it now. We have a taste of it now. But we have to labor to reckon ourselves with true reality. Which brings me to movement number two. Verse two says, set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. There's going to be many opportunities to apply this imperative in the weeks to come. But first, let me say that the Christian life can only be lived top down, not bottom up. And what I mean by that is that these false teachers are recommending and judging and pushing these Christians and trying to get them to believe that they can ascend up to God by their behaviors or by their asceticism. And you can't ascend the throne room with visions or experiences or asceticism. You can't perform incantations to get God to see you and do what you want. You can't cut your body or punish yourself in order to get God to notice you. It doesn't start with us. The Christian life is fueled with this kind of indirect power. Your hidden life changes your seen life. Your attachment to the vine produces the fruit. The indicatives energize the imperatives. If you're using your mind to impress God with good works, then you're hosed. If you're using your mind to keep your nose just clean enough to fly under the radar, it's not going to work. The way the Christian life works is you try to understand and grasp and absorb the realist realities in the universe, the things that are already true about you. And it starts with God, it starts with Christ, and then shows up in the nitty-gritty of our lives. Since the Tower of Babel, human beings have tried to ascend to God, but he comes down to us. We're tempted to try to manipulate fate or karma or whatever to get God to do what we want. But Christ rearranges our desires. We try to control God and Christ reminds us that we can't control anything. The Christian life is a life lived in dependence on the Spirit of God and oriented toward things above. And that's the only way to do things on earth in a way that matters, in a way that lasts. This phrase, set your mind on things that are above, is the same word group in Greek that Paul uses in Philippians 2.5 where he says, have this kind of mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have a certain kind of mindset. Have your thoughts and imaginations be shaped like the mind of Christ. Paul's not saying to merely think about stuff that's boring to you or to discipline your mind to think about things that you don't even really agree with or care much about. He's, he's not instructing us. 
He's not instructing us to, uh, to merely kind of corral our thinking to make it a bunch of churchy subjects. He's saying, be shaped. Like one pastor says, be shaped in your way of thinking, in your emotional life, your pattern of attitudes, your responses and preferences in people and entertainment and clothes and jobs and leisure, and this total set of your mind and heart be formed by realities that are above. The realities of God and Christ seated at the right hand of God in your true life, hidden with Christ in God, and your death behind you in the spectacular public appearance of Christ, and you're appearing with him in glory in front of you. Let your mindset be arranged around those kind of facts, those monumental truths. Let your mind be a mind that is shaped around the reality of Christ. Let it be a mind that's formed by the truth that Christ is where your true life is. Let your heart be sculpted by the truth that you died and now you've been raised. Don't let your heart be formed by worldly appetites that are perishing. Don't let your mind be formed by things that are set on this earth. Listen to Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame. And listen carefully, with minds set on earthly things. Setting our minds on things above is deeper than shallow asceticism. This is deeper than regulation-keeping legalism. This is having your impulses change, your preferences change, to having the kind of humility that shows up when you're not really paying attention. This is internal growth that could only be wrought by the powerful transformation of the Holy Spirit in your life. Consider another text with me, Matthew 16, 23, where it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and looks right in his eyes and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Setting our mind on the things of God, acquiring the mind that Christ Jesus had, the way that happens is as your heart is more and more consumed with the things and the facts that are above they, they start to take up more space in our mind and in our heart. So, so often we think of right thinking as being able to talk about something correctly or to get the right answer on a test, but to have this kind of changed disposition is having the entire landscape of your heart and mind reshaped where the appetites of the flesh 
and the mindset focused on earthly things is shoved aside or shoved out of our hearts and minds. And I want us to ask, how does that happen? How do we do that in the Christian life? And I think what displaces our impulses to set our minds on the things below is right here in this text. It says, seek. And this represents the third movement this morning. Seek. How do you set your mind on things above? Verse 1b says, seek them. Seek them. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Believer, in this room, you've been raised, you've been raised with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. So seek the things in your life that will last things that make it into the next life. Ferociously pursue heavenly reality. Famous theologians have long called the human heart a kind of idol factory. And essentially the point is, is that idols kind of are bubbling out of our hearts. Seeking in the human heart happens automatically by default. And I want, to be, I want to be clear that I don't mean that in a good way. I mean that in a bad way. I don't mean everyone's seeking for God or seeking for love or seeking for goodness. I'm thinking about places like Romans where it says that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. There are people everywhere setting their minds on death. And the way that manifests itself is that they're seeking carnal realities and they worship false gods. But the human heart is always oriented toward what it desires, what it loves. It seeks. It can't not seek. And I know I'm not blowing anybody's mind right now. Your heart is directed somewhere. It seeks fame. It seeks fortune. It seeks sex or money or power. Ultimately, it seeks to be God. To shake loose of God's authority and try to usurp his seat on the throne because we want to have the glory that only God deserves. When he says things like, I'm not going to share my glory with anybody else, he doesn't say that in a vacuum. We try to steal God's glory. We do it all the time. And, and even nowadays in culture, we have a habit of explaining all of our sinful behavior away by claiming that we have good or at least neutral motives. But the scriptures don't really reinforce that explanation. We seek to hurt people because we're offended in our pride and we're angry and we want to be God and they shouldn't treat me like that. We seek to be worshipped and respected and adored and obeyed because we want to be God. We seek to judge and disqualify other people because we're pretty sure that we should be in charge. We, we seek pleasure and leisure and sin because it's a feature of human beings to seek something. 
Even the man that doesn't look like he's seeking anything is seeking the false freedom of irresponsibility. Even the slothful man is seeking the short-lived pleasure of not doing work that's his to do. Even the controlling person is seeking the comfort that comes from not being challenged. Our hearts drive us and they drive us to seek in service of what we're worshiping. We, we serve a master always. And the Bible says that we can't have two. And for the believer in this room, the power of sin that was once your master, that once oriented you to seek the things of the flesh and satisfy self-serving desires, that power's broken. That power is broken. This is the difference of the believer. The Christian has been freed from the power of sin so that they can, so that they are able to seek the things that are above by the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember the sequence. You aren't seeking salvation. You aren't seeking, I'm sorry, to get salvation. You are seeking because you've been saved right? You aren't seeking to accomplish death to sin. You're seeking because you're dead to sin already. You aren't seeking to acquire your, your resurrection. You're seeking because you've been raised. You aren't seeking so that you can be with Christ. You're seeking because you are in him. You aren't seeking so that you can earn something. You're seeking because in Christ Jesus, you have everything already. But, but it, would, it would be a mistake. It would be a mistake if I left out one last quote. And that quote is, no one gains the mindset of heaven passively. Nobody gains the mindset of heaven passively. Effort in the Christian life is aggressive, but it isn't earning. It's vigorous, but the outcomes are not our rights. It's tons of work, and none of that work works like your salary does. It's all grace, all the way, all the time. So take hold of your mind, take a hold of your will today and devote it to the Lord. Commit to enlist your heart in seeking things that are above where Christ is. And when Christ, who is your very life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. That day's coming. The day when we turn and remember this short part of our life and it looks like a vapor. That day is approaching when it looks like a tiny blip on the timeline of our new reality, our realist life, the life that's hidden with Christ in God. So set your mind today on things above and confess and repent of sin in your heart. Cut loose things that hold you back or weigh you down. Get those things out of your way so that you can see what you're doing, so that you can seek, so that you can lay hold in your minds and hearts of that for which you were laid a hold of. Believers in this room, you aren't like 
someone who's been raised from the dead. You are someone who's been raised from the dead. As we move to talk about specific sins in Colossians 3 and the verses to come, don't forget your death and your resurrection. Don't forget the facts that you died and were raised. Keep the grounding of your work in, the, in faith, in the powerful working of God and not in our feeble attempts on the ground. I want to move to take communion this morning. And that isn't an empty ritual that we do. It isn't, um, it isn't a mindless act that we do. It is the place that we own the reality and we proclaim the reality that without Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we have no hope. We have no hope. And if you're in this room, if you're in this room and you count yourself among those who put all of their faith and hope in Jesus Christ, we invite you to take communion this morning. The way we do it here is you break a piece of bread off and you dip it into the cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. There'll be stations, two stations in front of me, a station in the balcony and a station further to the left that is gluten-free and single serve. And then also further over to my left, we have prayer ministers who come up to the front every single Sunday and wait for opportunities to pray for the people in this congregation. So if there's anybody here who desires prayer this morning for anything, those prayer ministers will be over on the side of the sanctuary and they'd love to pray for you. Before I pray for us, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And then he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'm going to pray for us. And as I'm praying, the servers are going to come up and the musicians are going to come up. And as I'm praying, take a second to reflect. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate things in your life that are holding you back or pushing you to live your life with your mind set on things down here below. Ask the Spirit of God to awaken you to those things and give them to Christ, repent of them, and walk forward and eat in faith this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Would you all bow your heads as I pray? Spirit of God, would you come, would you come this morning and strengthen our faith? Would you transform, transform our hearts from the inside out? Would you sanctify us? Would you push out being consumed with worldly things, with earthly things, with things that are perishing? And would you consume our hearts and minds with heavenly realities? Would you shrink things in our lives by enlarging our kind of understanding and apprehension of heavenly facts 
realities about our lives. God, would you increase increase our love for you this morning? Spirit of God, would you convict us of sin and give us courage and grace to repent and leave it behind? Strengthen our faith as we come forward to eat of this meal, I pray in Jesus' name. So come up whenever you're ready and eat in faith.